Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here. I'm with Rishi Kumar, who is a high-tech software executive around data AI, data integration. He is also a U.S. congressional candidate from Silicon Valley. See, I get the best of the best on my podcast. You know, that, that's how we roll here. So let me give a little intro to, to Rishi and then, and then you know, we'll like turn it over to him as usual. He's a seasoned software executive. He's actually had a career at IBM, you know, my, my home spot, Cisco, other startups. He's now part of Infocs, where he runs sales, marketing, product management. Uh, in fact, I think the the formal title, and he'll he'll have to confirm this, but he's the chief revenue officer at, at Infocs. He's also running or ran, we'll get this straight, for U.S. Congress from Silicon Valley, where I know he's he's got a great start to it one way or another. He's an advocate for crypto. Maybe we'll get into that. But a veteran of IBM for 15 years, now that chief revenue officer of Infocs. Rishi, I appreciate you being here. We had some trouble with uh, scheduling and whatever, but we finally figured it out. Well, I'm glad uh, we finally got together, and I'm really looking forward to this uh, discussion on data today, Al. And I've been following your podcast for some time, so it's an honor to be here talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's great to have you on. We had, the, I think the last time we were able to meet, where were we? We were someplace over dinner. That's right. It was in Orlando, and uh, that was at at a conference. And uh, we were sitting next to each yes. other and having a good conversation. And that's when we talked about being on this podcast. And I'm super happy we finally made it happen. Please provide your experience. Look, go back as far as you like. And you might even uh, hit us on a little bit of politics. So, Al, very simply stated, I'm a Silicon Valley geek, uh, that made it out from India for graduate school mechanical engineering to the University of Connecticut. Yeah, I'm a big college uh, basketball fan and uh, and then made it out here in Silicon Valley working for companies like IBM, Cisco. But uh, you know what has truly uh, excited me is to be part of uh, the innovation story, uh, not only in IBM, Cisco, but also in multiple startups. And uh, what I ended up uh, strangely doing was applying that tech framework into, into community affairs, into working in the community. And I have very, very interesting stories. And uh, I never, ever thought in my wildest dream that I would run for office someday. But <laughs> we ended up running for city council. And uh, that was a wild shot. And the very first time we escaped with a victory margin of only 71 votes, every vote counts. But four years later, we won with the highest votes in 66 years of my city because someone like me, a tech geek, uh, if, you, if I can put my arms around the different challenges and actually work to find solutions, which is where I see Washington totally broken today, you know, we can, we can actually make a huge dent, make a huge difference. And this is really what my community observed. But everything points back to my tech roots in terms of how we have worked within companies like IBM, Cisco, it's all about getting things done. If you if you don't step up, if you don't deliver, then you're out. And that's the same kind of zeal, energy, innovation approach that I seek to take to Washington now in this run. Well, I already got a ton of questions I'd like to ask you. 
on the politics piece, you know, how do you get into that from being a technologist? I mean, obviously Silicon Valley, maybe that's the natural transition, but there must be some passion in you that has really driven your, your interest. Well, my wife says that I'm a glutton for punishment. And, uh, you know, what I essentially did was I, I looked at problems around me and then I would look around me as to who's going to step up. And uh, I realized that there was really no one stepping up and it fell upon me. And uh, the glutton for punishment I am, I said, okay, let's take on this challenge and the next one. And then people started pushing me on like, hey, we need you to do this, uh, run for this office. And, uh, and that actually led me to this run for Congress because uh, there is a little bit of disillusionment with politics in this country, in, uh, in our community here in Silicon Valley. You think? <laughs> yeah, a little bit is an understatement. And I, I, I yeah. see uh, people are essentially looking at uh, what's playing out. It's a lot of political platitudes. It's a lot of activity for the sake of activity. But it's never really about actually finding solutions. And many of our elected leaders are essentially looking for, for an opportunity to continue on their seats. And, uh, and that's the reason why, why people decided they wanted me on the city council. And then eventually, a lot of the, uh, the tech audience of Silicon Valley started calling out that, hey, we need someone like you in Washington. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think so. I ever thought that I would be sitting here running for office or, or to be in Washington. You know, if you look at my background, coming into this country with two suitcases uh, to be a graduate student in mechanical engineering out there on the East Coast. And so it's, it's a wild dream, but I'm really enjoying this ride for sure, Al. Uh, fantastic. So you said no one is stepping up. What is your definition of stepping up? Well, in terms of, uh, let's look at California. We see a major exodus going on. And then we, we see the issues with, uh, with housing. There is a big housing crunch, homelessness. There's a lot of crime going on. We have recurring drought and uh, the, the water infrastructure that was built for California 100 years back was for 10 million people. And today we are exactly at the same situation, but the population has gone 4x. So, you know, we see a lot of like, uh, then you look at the state of California, we had a $100 billion deficit uh, just about a year and a half back. And today we are bracing for a $30 billion a hundred billion dollar surplus, which has become a thirty billion dollar uh, deficit today. So, so this is what people are talking about. That look, there's really nothing getting done. Sacramento has gone a little haywire. They are now looking at, uh, uh, you know, essentially increasing taxes, and nobody's really interested in optimizing the public sector. But it's all about let's go back to the people and uh, raise more money. But this is not how the real world operates. And people want rational, pragmatic, common sense thinking, uh, folks who can get stuff done. And uh, that was really how I got uh, inserted into this uh, role as a candidate today.
You know, you talk about people leaving California. I hear that in the news a lot. And some of the other items that you mentioned, it's kind of like a downward spiral though, isn't it? Because people leave, you need to make up the tax revenue someplace. So then you increase or you want to, there's a tendency to increase taxes or try to get taxes. Then more, you know, more people leave, then it's, you know, is that some of what you're facing? And how does this, how does this uh, intersect with technology? You know, essentially, when you look at, uh, so that's that's a great question now. When you look at California, about, I would say about 40, 45% of our revenue comes from Silicon Valley. So to an extent, I think Sacramento needs to, needs to treat Silicon Valley as a prized asset. But then uh, when Elon Musk left uh, and he moved to Texas, uh, a politician here in California remarked, that it's okay to have crazy billionaires, cranky, crazy billionaires leave uh, California. But I, I think we are doing a huge, huge disservice to our state when we have these uh, companies and these people leaving for other states because we cannot ever take our tech economy, the, the innovators, uh, for granted because there are some states that are dying to take over. You look at, uh, for example, the, the mayor of uh, Miami, uh, he's rolled out the red carpet for, for companies. And there are so many venture capital investors that have actually moved to, to Miami from Silicon Valley. And then you look at the innovators, they are moving to Texas, they are moving to Austin. So that's been the story. And I think California needs to get its act together. And it, it again boils down to tech. We need to you know, everything that has happened here in the Valley has been because of uh, the smart people who arrive here from all parts of the United States, uh, folks like Scott McNeely or Larry Ellison or like Elon Musk, and they arrive from different different parts of the world and they make things happen. And it's not like policies or, or anything else that are in favor. But I think we need to make it conducive. We need to make it work. And some of the policy ideas that we have is to create an innovation hub that uh, nobody's ever done before. For example, I was very fortunate to be part of the California Department of Education Computer Science uh, Strategic Implementation Panel. And we have rolled out a K-12 curriculum for every child in the state of California to study computer science. We need more of such ideas here, but we really don't see that. And I see, you know, everybody in uh, our politicians are our politicians are essentially chasing herd. I mean, they are following cattle. They are going down a cliff at times, but really not trying to actually address and find uh, solutions to problems. So, this is where I, I think people are getting more and more frustrated. So, you know, the, the surprising comment in your statement is that you mentioned that Silicon Valley or California in general needs an innovation hub, quote unquote. I mean, when you think of Silicon Valley and California, you know, more Silicon Valley than larger California, but you think innovation, how can it be that they need an innovation hub? I think it it sounds sounds strange, I think, to, to many that could be listening. We're talking about Silicon Valley here. Yes, uh, you're right. You're right, Al. It sounds a little strange. But again, you know, what has happened here is because of the water we drink and of the ecosystem that's been established here of people. But what the, when, when I touched upon the, the California Department of Education, the computer science curriculum, when I look at schools here in the Valley, for example, there's only a single class of programming, uh, the Java, uh, Java programming in, in high school. 
and uh, and that's that's about it. I mean, there is no other class that uh, are we really offering a community college program where we are teaching the art of innovation, and and this is where I believe we are not really doing what we should be. You know, we are we we are sitting on something amazing and wonderful here. You know, this is uh, the golden state. I mean, this is the the gold mining that's uh, that continues happening. But I don't think so. We have really launched programs to ensure that this can thrive. Now, for example, China and India, they are eating our lunch. Uh, you know, the crypto industry, for example, is a lot more robust in China. When you look at the, the, the CBDC, the digital currency, uh, China has already rolled out their E1. We see that uh, India is running a pilot right now. There is nothing really happening here. And then uh, we see all these companies like FTX that have really tanked and collapsed and people going to jail. So I think we can do a lot better. And it comes from a little ownership and investment by our public sector. You know, whether it's uh, the city of San Jose or whether it's uh, the uh, state of California, I think we need to establish these centers of excellence where our high school students, middle school students, the innovators, the CTOs, and uh, even the politicians uh, and professors from community colleges and local universities can get together and really create a culture of startup where they are teaching these students uh, early, early on in terms of what it takes to do a startup. Because I fear that, you know, when this next generation, this generation that is currently out here in the valley innovating, when they begin to fade out and if you haven't really passed the baton, things can go downhill pretty quickly. So that's my big fear. And that's the reason why I believe the onus is upon the public sector to take charge a little bit and ensure that we can uh, have a thriving innovation economy here in Silicon Valley. If there are, and, and I'll switch the technology here in just a second, but if there's like three areas that you're campaigning on, if you were to summarize it, what, what is it? What are those three? Well, firstly, it's about getting things done and, uh, you know, been very effective as a local council member in getting stuff done. We believe that Washington needs more of that. And secondly, I don't think so. You know, if you if I look at Washington or I look at uh, the leaders here, are f- there's no one really who is uh, tech savvy, who has an understanding of the innovation economy. So my plan is with my approach and understanding of the economy from the inside of our startup economy, of the innovation economy, Someone like me can make a big, huge difference when it comes to growing our economy. And then thirdly, the future viability of Silicon Valley, because when companies are leaving and when startups are leaving, uh, you know, this is going to cause a huge amount of problems. And there are underlying issues and challenges that I touched upon with water, with traffic, with housing. We need a plan. We need a vision plan to address how we'll bring this all together to ensure the future sustainability of Silicon Valley. So those are my top three, you know, and we have a plan. We have a plan. Uh, we, we were on the drawing boards, uh, you know, coming together with a vision plan, like what are the major issues? What are the types of solutions we can uncover to ensure that we will address these challenges as the congressional elect from Silicon Valley? And, and essentially, it's a good plan. We believe we can make it happen. We just need a chance to be on that seat and get a win next year. 
Why are these companies leaving? And I, I certainly know, I mean, it's been in the news that Elon is, is one that has left, but who else of prominence has left that, uh, you know, raises the, 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 the concern? Well, you know, somebody like Larry Ellison, he's left. He's no longer here. He's taken his, uh, his uh, you know, his tax money uh, and he's left. Uh, Palantir has left. And, uh, you know, there are many, many examples of companies that are leaving. I mean, Tesla is still here. They're manufacturing, but they have moved their headquarters. So th- this is this shift has been happening. You know, hundreds of companies have left. Uh, the venture capital community themselves, they have gone. And the pandemic was really the the tipping point because, uh, you know, the companies and, and the folks realized that they did not have to live here in a super expensive Silicon Valley. And they said, let's take our money, let's take uh, pack our bags and uh, and move elsewhere. Larry, Palantir, hundreds are leaving. Are they leaving because of taxes or is there other elements? Well, taxes is definitely a big, huge element. Uh, a story is... In my town, there was somebody uh, who used to live here who I knew. And, uh, you know, he, he made like billions of dollars with his uh, startup. And the first thing he did was he moved to Reno, Nevada. And, uh, you know, he wanted to save on his taxes. And California, the truth is the taxes are very high. But also, you know, when it comes to crime, for example, uh, crime is a big problem in every part of uh, California, I would say. You know, when we go to the movie theaters, my wife and I will leave the windows down because they just randomly show up. They break into cars trying to find stuff, you know. So crime is a big problem. And you look at the state of San Francisco with the homelessness that has gone completely haywire and we really don't have solutions. So these are challenges. I mean, uh, you look at the city of San Francisco, they have lost about a quarter million people over the last three years. And it's still shrinking because people are sick and tired. I mean, the tourists are not showing up there anymore. So those are the types of challenges and and people find it very easy. And in fact, you know, my story is uh, when I knock on doors over the weekend, I, I, I'm at different streets in different cities in, in my congressional district. And almost every street, I find a family or two that have packed their bags or have already left town. Almost every street. Because people are a little tired of this. They feel that they can go somewhere else and find that quality of life they're looking for, you know, and that's that's really what's going on. Where are you originally from? From Bombay, India. And how long have you been in the U.S. then? I, I came for my graduate school, mechanical engineering, and then uh, moved to Silicon Valley in 2000. And I've been here uh-huh. ever since. You know, one thing that occurs to me when I, I'm looking at your resume, so to speak. I mean, yeah, you, you talk about being the city council member. I look at all the different areas where you've either been a board member. I mean, like West Valley Clean Water Program, West Valley Solid Waste Management Authority, Commissioner of a County Expressway Ad Hoc Committee, Santa Clara County Library, JPA. Man, that's a lot of committees. That's a lot of work. How do you do that? How do you prioritize when you're also running... Uh, or you're also serving as a chief revenue officer for Enfolks. Do you sleep? I mean, how, how does one do that? And uh, now that do you sleep line has been repeated a thousand times. Uh, folks who know me, they're always asking me this question. Where do you find the time? Where do you find the energy to do all this? And my wife says it, uh, she states it very succinctly. You know, what she says is, since you became an elected leader, we haven't had a weekend. 
So, you know, I work pretty hard, uh, 16 hour days and, uh, and, uh, so that's been the nature of what's going on, you know, I mean, uh, still a, a full-time day job and then, uh, the politics and the community and, uh, but I, you know, what I feel is that it's basically been, uh, like, uh, I found my life's calling doing this. And so it's not really work, you know, I, I really, I, enjoy what i'm doing and uh, it makes me very happy as a person so you know it's not really work in fact i feel that you know it's uh, it's it's actually helping me helping my my mood for example in a in a huge way it's very therapeutic for me to be out there solving problems and uh, helping people and that's really my calling the reason why we are running for this particular office congress Congressional District 16, Silicon Valley. When is the uh, what? That, that sounds like it's the next steps. When, when when is the vote? When will we know? Yes, California has a top two system with the primary election. It's one common pool of candidates from all parties, and that the top two make it to the next round. So I'm challenging another Democrat uh, who's been there for a long, long time. And in uh, last year, we actually beat six other challengers. To make it pass to the to the November election uh, with the same incumbent, and we did about f- uh, more than forty two percent in that last run, which is historic. Nobody has ever crossed like twenty five thirty percent over the last uh, few decades. So we exceeded that. We obviously fell short, and we believe we can we can win this. And the way this will work is uh, right now. I haven't seen any other anyone else running in the primary election. It's just two of us, the incumbent and myself. And uh, we we believe we'll win again, we'll be top two. And then it'll be the general election of November. And the plan is to is to win that, uh, that race uh, in a huge way and take this uh, innovation approach to Washington. But you got to spend some of your time with campaign finance, do you not? I mean, trying to raise funds uh, for a campaign. Can you tell me about that? I mean, look... Yes, that that is probably the most difficult part of a campaign. But, you know, uh, this congressional district that I'm running from is the most affluent congressional district in all of America. It's number one uh, because it's all the tech money here. So if you can't raise money here, it's probably you should just go home and retire or something. Right. So we we (laughs) raised about, yeah, we we raised about one point two million dollars in the last run. And unfortunately, the incumbent spent uh, three times more money. And that's the edge that the incumbent has. And uh, one of the pledges we have taken is to never accept any dark tainted money, like no PAC money, no special interest group money, whereas my opponent uh, does accept all that money. And it's absolutely, people tell me now that Rishi should have a change of policy because there is a huge disparity when it comes to raising money. And I tell them the ethics and politics is very important to me. You know, if I can, if I can take that stance, and if I can take this stance to Washington and uh, we'll see a, hopefully a change happening because the super PACs and the PACs have polluted American politics. They are, they are subverting the agenda of the people. And uh, it's a very, very important thing to me. So we'll keep on this path of no PAC money, no dark tainted money, raising money from people. We spend a lot of time over the weekend talking to people. It's just, uh, especially during the, you know, after the pandemic, People are still reluctant to get together and meet uh, in in like in backyard fundraisers, for example. 
pre pre pandemic uh, we would raise a lot of money in backyards and that has sort of faded out and so now it's about personal outreach personal contacts reaching out to people and raising money so this year hasn't been very good for us so far in terms of raising money and uh, and uh, but you know we we believe in the merits of our agenda of our policy and we believe that as the election starts coming uh, uh, coming together in uh, like next year we will see a, uh, a spike in our fundraising all right i got to ask a question and a follow on cuz you kind of went into it very interesting to me uh, maybe a little bit contentious but as you raise money you talk about ethics and politics i think it's fair to say that there's a substantial what do i want to say there, there there's a substantial portion of those in the U.S. that are losing faith. I mean, is it possible? Once you're entering the money game, everybody wants something in return for their money. So there's a feeling that everybody's bought. How do, how do you avoid that? Is it even possible to avoid that to and get the funding you need to run a campaign? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a really good question, Al. It's a really good question. And and mostly what I hear from people, you know, just like your question, is that it's impossible. And then what people also tell me is like, Rishi, you might stay clean now, but once you get to to Washington and you're in that swamp, mm-hmm. you will also be transformed. And so people do not have faith in the system today. And, uh, you know, it's... it's uh, but at some point, the, the problem is this, that... Uh, so when I look at other countries across the world, the incumbency is a huge disadvantage. So people tend to uh, uproot the incumbent and replace it with someone who's a challenger because they are very unhappy with the state of affairs. So right now I see America sliding downhill with respect to how we are making these choices. The country is very divided and uh, our politicians on both sides are actually playing the stokes of division. And, uh, and they are basically ensuring that they would get elected but really not addressing the needs of America. And at some point, the frustration will bubble and that's when a revolution will happen and people will say, okay, out with the incumbents. When you look at our politicians today uh, in Washington, their valuation is into like 200, $300 million. The salary is about $200,000, you know, the salary of uh, a congressional member. So how did they create a portfolio of $200 million? And this is the corruption that is playing out and there is no accountability because there is absolutely no say that the American people have. I mean, these politicians end up staying for decades. They are really not addressing challenges. In fact, uh, you know, we have seen uh, uh, congressional members who declare that they have done 50 bills in office. But when you actually analyze the resumes, they have only done three or four of them, very trivial ones like renaming your post office. So to some extent, some of our politicians are hoodwinking the people because, you know, people are really not dissecting and analyzing the resume. The press is also not calling out the failures of these politicians. And this is essentially a recipe for a huge disaster that is brewing. At some point, an American people will say, okay, it's time to wake up. It's time to take charge. And until that happens, this will continue to go downhill. And But, you know, my, my take is, you know, it's one person at a time. If I can call out these issues, if I can stay true to my agenda, to ethics and politics, we can hope that in the future, we will see some change happen in Washington.
Look, um, I think it's going to be difficult, but it uh, sounds like you're up for the job. If you can stay true and not bought, um, then then you're on to something. I mean, you make it, you made mention to, you don't know what to trust anymore. I mean, look at the George Santos thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know if he lied about everything, but I mean, I mean, it's crazy. I, I don't know what world we live in anymore. I mean, that's why some of these questions I'm asking you are very interesting to me because uh, you're in the middle of it. And uh, I'm just curious as to what you're seeing versus what we all see outside looking look at, in, but it's, it's not always good, man. Correct. When you look at George Santos, for example, uh, you know, I think uh, our people are not getting the truth because the truth has been polluted by both sides, I would say. And so people don't know what to believe. So there are still a segment of the population in that district that will still vote for George Santos because they cannot tell the truth. And again, that, that's the failure of America. You know, We have gone down a wrong path over the last decade, I would say. Even social media is guilty of that. You know, So I, I think there is a, the pendul- pendulum has swung the wrong way and it's time to reset it. Well, let's switch to a little technology. I think that's a good transition because speaking of not knowing, you know, what what's the truth and what's not, I mean, with the advent of AI, with um, things like chat GPT that people can see, and it's a scrape of the internet. And anytime you're looking at social media and you're scraping the internet, I mean, by definition, you're not going to know what's true and what's not. And sometimes the, the supposed facts come across as facts and are really bold in their assertion, but then you lift up the hood and you say, oh, that's that's not accurate. Or it's in context, not accurate. Um, what are your thoughts on where we're headed from a, from a technology standpoint that right now, I don't think it lends itself to <laughs> more facts. It almost lends itself to more fake news. You're, you're, you're absolutely spot on, Al. You know, I think uh, we have a lot of fake news happening. And uh, I, I think there's an opportunity to apply technology. And for example, with Facebook and uh, with uh, Instagram, you know, there is an opportunity for us to correct these algorithms. For example, teenage girls, uh, if they are depressed and watch a video uh, with that specific mood, then they are shown more of that content, which uh, leads to something really bad happening down the road. You know, I, I think our algorithms are flawed to an extent. Uh, when you look at, if you just look at social media. So, you know, that needs to be corrected. And I believe that applying the right type of uh, an AIML algorithm can actually help address some of these, you know. So so essentially, you know, the the there is some sort of a fact check that Facebook has today, for example, and they are they are sort of displaying that. But it needs to be devoid of, uh, of uh, a political ideology. And unfortunately, you know, Silicon Valley is guilty of that. I mean, we saw that. And uh, there is a very specific political ideology that is driving how these social media engines are operating because uh, of the culture that is so very uh, visible here in Silicon Valley that is part of the system. So, I, But I think if you left it to uh, the machine <clears throat> with, uh, with the right type of algorithms, and uh, and building robust uh, engines, uh, I don't think so. We are ready for it today, but if we applied the the right type of algorithms, and we ended up uh, in the next five to ten years, we can see a huge difference. At the end of the day, what's the purpose? We need to ensure that information is accurate, that people can rely upon. 
right now nobody believes what they are seeing and it's very very dangerous for the country because this is the reason why uh, any any political ideology can catch fire because people will tend to believe what they are hearing and uh, we can fix that by applying the right type of technology podcast okay, listeners this is Al Martin i'm going to break this for part 1 next week we're going to come back and talk about modernizing the data stack we're going to talk about ai we'll get back into some tech and politics talk about crypto we're going to have some fun hopefully you'll join us thank you bye